Hey everybody, this is Kim Blackwell and Louis Extravaganza and this is Work, Work, the podcast. Voices for the voices that go unheard. Today we are with a really good friend of ours, DJ Eddie X. Eddie actually is a really famous DJ, actually really prolific DJ. And I met Eddie when I was 16 years old, when I was just a budding extravaganza. But Eddie was already a dancer. Mm -hmm. You grew up in New Jersey, yes? I grew up in Patterson, New Jersey. Uh Uh-huh. And I think it was around 15 or 16, I got into this little theater and dance company. In New Jersey? In New Jersey. Okay. And it was called the Inner City Ensemble. I had seen them perform many times. And I always loved them because they did pantomime and it was about dancing. And but, and then this girlfriend of mine invited me to go to this uh, ward nights that they had. And they had a little competition. And the competition was a hustle competition, dance competition. Now, wait, what is hustling? Just for the people who hustling don't know Hustling is a couple's is. dance and it's basically um, doing a lot of turns, some lifts, <laughs> It depends how intricate you want to get into it. It's like salsa disco dancing. Yes, exactly. So before that, you didn't have any formal training? No training. I used to dance in my living room. (laughs) And so we won the the contest, and I I started my training, my formal training. And and it was ballet, and it was uh, some theater and musicals and some voice training. It was just a little bit of everything. So there was an audition at Alvin Ailey. So I trained for another two months really intensely until I got myself good enough to, and confident enough to go to that audition. And I did, and I made it, and I got in. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so I was, uh, so for two years, I trained at Alvin Ailey into their scholarship program. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh huh. This is amazing. That's you where, started, only started formal training at 15. Uh huh. Yeah. So I started at 15, and by 17, I already got the scholarship at Alvinelli. And and pretty much that's what I did. And it's strange because um, two of my closest friends that were uh, in Juilliard um, lived in New York City, so I moved in with them. And us three lived in this small one-bedroom apartment in, in on 27th and 10th, no, 29th and 10th. And we st- we started our journey into the. So dance what was happening in New York? Like, what were the clubs that were in New York at that time, 1980? Well, the Paradise Garage for sure, um, but that was Saturday night. That was an event. Sticks, A Better Days, Peter Rabbits. Did you ever go to Peter? Peter Rabbits, Rabbits was around. I never um, went to Peter Rabbits, you guys. But you know, you must have been like I in heard the sixth grade. Of Peter Rabbits. Okay. There's 96 West. Which was a small dive place, and was I think it was a Tuesday night. Those are always my favorites. And the dives. baby, you 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 couldn't wait to get in there, <laughs> you know. And the better days with Timmy Regisford oh. DJing, and David Cole from CNC Music Factory was oh, DJing God, there yeah. at the time. Yes. And there was my my first introduction to a gay club was was that club, the better days. And when I walked in there and saw two men dancing together, forget it. It was. I, I found my I found my niche. I found yes. my place. I found my my tribe. Now, is that where you met the Gansas? Like, how did you become involved with the House of Extravaganza? Either it was either at the piers or it was at the Sound Factory. 
Okay, talk about the peers and what was going on at that time at the peers. Well, the peers back back in those days were just, I mean, nobody went down there. It was not, it's not what the peers are now in New York City mm-hmm. when you go there. Gentrified. Yeah, well, it's gentrified. It's cleaned up. I mean, right. I mean, we used to, we did one day, <laughs> one day I orchestrated a cleanup and we went there with rakes and bags because there were so many broken bottles. It was pretty scary and dangerous. So we did like a cleanup. Of, of the peers and we actually got a picture taken and in the in some magazine or some newspaper because we kind of made an effort to clean up the peers because that is it was, so Eddie X you guys Virgo <laughs> like come on y'all get that bag girl we're gonna go out and clean, clean up this pier and it, yeah, queens it was, that clean are the best though <laughs> and I would bring a boombox okay and just like I did on um, the Puerto Rican Day Parade every year and have that boombox and we would set it in the Central Park and blast mixtapes that Junior Vasquez would record for me from the Sound Factory the week before. And we would, it was just, the dance party was on. And this is where all the Gansas. And this is where all the Gansas would meet up. Like I remember one time coming out of the train on 6th Avenue and I was going down to the pier and who do, uh, who do I find like outside of the train station upstairs on 6th Avenue, Keith Haring looking up into the sky, looking at the moon and I just looked at him and I was like, what are you looking at? <laughs> we were just both staring at the moon. Next thing you know, we're walking down to the piers and everyone was down there, Angie, Mother Angie, David, um, Shady Louie. I mean, we were all just there. Coco and Robinson. It. You know, with Keith Herring, no big <laughs> yeah. deal. And just major well, pop artists. You know, Ladies and gentlemen, that is New York City in Yeah, well, that's what it was yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Everybody knew. It was like the, the, like the garage. Everybody knew that everybody that was into that vibe and the scene and the music knew that the garage was the place to go or to be. Right. And so we this were is kind of the, there. Maybe that's the. Did, were you ever at the garage? I went to the final weekend mm. of the garage. I think that's where I first got introduced to the House of Extravaganza. How was your whole experience with the House of Extravaganza? First, for me, it was a home away from home. I, I found a, a a place where, you know, I could be myself and also be protected because i think living in new york back in those days it was a lot of fear behind it so it's dangerous yeah so we when we congregated it was like i felt protected i yeah. felt like you know this family of love that we got each other's back and we're going to take care of each other there was a lot of them too yeah yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, you know, I remember getting prepared for balls and there was about two or three balls that really stand out for me because they were impactful. And I think for the first, one of them was the, the House of Fields when Patricia Fields did that ball. And, you know, it was kind of the first time that ever the balls were publicized. Yes. They had different magazines doing photo shoots in different corners of the location. And it was like a big to do. You now, know? did you go to any of the balls before the big old? Oh, yeah. Ball? Oh, yeah. And what category did you walk? Well, I back then I didn't walk. I, ju- I was just looking. I was, you know, I was just looking to find my niche. Window shopping. Yeah, window shopping. <laughs> because, I, you know, window it was shopping like, for a category. where do I fit in in <laughs> right. this, you know? Vote, and then, yeah. and then one ball. I remember David Ian. She, she, she was the the host, the master of ceremonies at the ball, and I would just come out for, I came out for like six categories, 
And I won them all. In one ball? Yeah, one ball. <laughs> the only one I didn't win was face. But you were best known for another category. What category was that? It was body? It was body. <laughs> body. And can I tell you when Eddie and his boyfriend at the time, oh Miguel, God. hit the floor for body. And they played that song, Body. Mm-hmm. The kids did the death kids drops before there were death came drops. together. I mean, because it was just like these two greased up Puerto Rican guys <laughs> coming out there in their neon, you know, spankity dudes. And <laughs> I, we were all like, oh, my God. Do you remember when we did, we did, we did these baby doll T-shirts? They were like Mickey Mouse. <laughs> And then we, we got together and we started ripping the shirts off of each other uh, until we were down to just like a little jockstrap or something. Oh, like the kids gagged. Oh, yeah. It was, it was you know, we, we, we made sure to give them shows. <laughs> they knew how to work it. And it's so funny because it gave us all such a sense of pride. Not that you were yes. ripping each other's clothes off, yes. but because we were fighting so hard to be noticed as mm. a house mm. in those you know, ballroom yeah. in the ballroom yeah. scene at that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that for we them still... to really cause this commotion when they came out was, you know, it was like well, we was were proud only, of it that. It was the only Latin house, yeah, yeah. Latin affiliated house of of all of them. So we had to work, you know, shit ten times as hard just to you know stand out and to be recognized. Yeah, and all that hard work really paid off because now we are one of the more prominent houses in the ballroom scene and our members are consultants on the new pose show which is on effects so we've really come a long way and we're really really proud of that now i what i also remember about you eddie is that your journey took on many facets like you had a stint as a model mm-hmm. which propelled your choreography in some videos and you're acting in some commercials, which is really, really great. It was also actually the time when you met Jimmy, who became your boyfriend, and you guys moved to Los Angeles. You're here doing the commercial thing, and then cut to, what, 1990? 90, 91. Well, 91, is that when you started the temple? 91. 91? It was 91? How did you transition into... Your DJ work. Well, this is because this, he was. This is even where DJing. your your fr- your lady friend here, Kim <laughs> Blackwell, comes into play, because I think Kim, you were working as an assistant for Jimmy. At I the was time. Jimmy's assistant, his personal. And assistant. And we had already yes. like formed our little posse family. Yeah. Here in LA, I remember bitching and complaining about the nightclub scene here and the club scene. And I remember Kim's words. She said, "Why don't you stop bitching and find a place and do your own fucking club?" So yeah, we had it went, was we had, Kim Blackwell who yeah, was birthed DJ Eddie. Else. Kind of really was. <laughs> we had gone to Gay Pride. Remember, we had gone uh-huh. to Gay Pride in New York and carried. Probably, oh, yeah. I know we saw you there at the Sound Factory, <laughs> Lewis. And we came back and it was like, okay, now's the, let's do it. Mm-hmm. And LA at the time, I mean, there were clubs going on here. I think um, Catch One was, was happening at that time. Yeah. Club Louie had happened and been over. But there wasn't anything that had that vibe. there was just something there, missing there, there was it was the new york vibe, element that underground that, that underground. sort of soulful mixed it was, it was yeah, the, because it was very polarized there it was, was a whole it was, west hollywood yeah. scene that was and the great thing about la back in those days in the 1990s 
was that L.A. didn't have anything underground. There was maybe one or two places that we knew of. And because it was a, such a small group of people, you know, it wasn't like like L.A. is now where you have tons of stuff happening everywhere. Hollywood, West Hollywood, downtown. I mean, you, you name it, you, you got stuff going on. Back in the day, there was not much going on at all. It was very different. Like there was the whole Roxbury velvet rope type yeah. of scene, celebrities. And then there was the underground, but those were more rave type of right. parties where you get a flyer, you get a secret location. It was very different and it wasn't as mixed. So those tended to be more straight, right. you know, hmm. West Hollywood was very gay. Like, you know, even like rage and stuff like that, all that stuff was happening on, on Santa Monica Boulevard, Mickey's and stuff like that. But I remember like rage specifically wasn't very welcoming no. With the ladies. No. They did not really? like girls. No, back no. then, no. 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 They did not like Rage. girls in there. But you know you know club. what else I think also set us apart when we started the night? Now, one was the location. You know, we picked somewhere outside of West Hollywood. Yeah. It was on Hollywood and La Brea at this little club called the Spice Club. Yes. We were adamant of opening until 4 a.m. Yes. That was part of our clause and that was part of our agreement with the with the place we contracted at first was that we needed to open till 4 a.m. Because we also knew that at 2 a.m. when the clubs let out, they had no place to go. And if they knew of this place, they would come. They, they would come. And what happened was, little by little, I mean, I think, what did we have the first night? I think it was 100 and... The first night it opened? Yeah, it was like 100 and... Maybe. And a lot of those people were like, can I have my money back? No. It took a minute to find the audience. Because what really gave it that New York vibe, one, sound system, very, very important. That sound system, honey, was everything. (laughs) And the DJ, the music was first. It wasn't like, oh, we're playing music, we're playing the hit, you know, to rotate the dance floor so they can go to the bar. It was, no, we're going to give you... Eric Puyo. It was underground. The house DJ music, literally you know. was flown in yeah. every week from New York. Every week from New York. Really? Yeah. Mind you, while the Eric, you know. while we had Eric uh, at the club every weekend, we made sure we made a budget for him and to fly him in every week. I also set up a little system down in my basement of my house. I had already like started shopping for records and doing my thing. So. I mean, when Eric would come, we would spend, I mean, I was already spending 10 and 12 hours downstairs. Oh my God, he was a beast. Yeah. He was not playing. He was like, uh, where is Eddie? You you didn't need to ask downstairs. You you knew where he was, down in that basement. And the the week after my 30th birthday party was when we opened the temple. Oh, wow. Okay. Because we had my 30th birthday party at the house. And then the week after, we opened Temple. Okay. Yes. So it, was, it was the following week. We tried to bring what we learned from the club scene in New York. Yes. Because going to the club scene in New York, every week was an adventure. Yeah. Every week was a different decor. Every week was a different theme. And, you know, we tried to bring that to L.A. because there was nothing like that at the time. It took about maybe six weeks of doing it before it really popped. And then when it popped, it was just, you know, five year. It was a five year run of just every weekend. And then we added Sundays at at the El Rey and and we called that pump. And that was a whole other experience because we had a stage to work with. (laughs) But wait, how long from Eric Puyo to 
the rise of DJ Eddie X. Oh, it was a spiritual moment. And it was when Eric Puyo was on his deathbed yeah. in the hospital. And he looked at me. He says, I don't want anyone DJing the club but you. He says, you're ready. Wow. And I never forget those because after the day after that was when he went into the coma and he passed away. Yeah. So it was literally the day before he died. And when he said that to me, it was like he... I felt like he passed the torch to me. Because had you felt ready before that? like No, uh, and no, I wasn't even ready when I did it. Yeah. I did it purely out of... I, look, I remember... I remember clearly <laughs> fucking up some mixes. Oh, yeah, there was Bad. some train wrecks. Bad. <laughs> and But all I remember was wow, everyone... <laughs> train wrecks. But it, back. it didn't matter. <laughs> but, because like I said, the technical stuff wasn't there, but the music was... It was there. Yeah. But, I mean, but, it was there. but what I what I do recall <laughs> I is that everyone would wait for it, and when that finally got the mix finished, I would hear applause. Absolutely, like they were with me. Yes, they were like, "There it is." Yeah, we is. knew you were gonna get it. Bro. That's okay, girl. You got the. <laughs> yes. It took you a little bit, but you got it. <laughs> because I would introduce the next song, and it was. Oh, and it's so strange because I had been practicing. <laughs> I had been practicing for so long, so I had it to a T. Yeah, in my garage, in my basement by <laughs> myself. Right. Now I put me out in public. That's a whole other story. And I have records in front of me, and I have to pick from them. It's it said that was a, it was a far bigger responsibility than I was Absolutely. ready for. But then, because we had already established our core crowd. They were with us. They were with yes. me. And they, they allowed me to fuck up. Yeah. And I felt okay. That you know? is so rare, though. That's really interesting that you say that because that's a rarity in, like, club land, right? Oh, Where yeah. you're watching this DJ find his footing, find mm -hmm. his legs, find his rhythm. Yep. Yeah. And so then... Eventually, it moved. It grew out of that small VIP well, space we're, we're the VIP into room. the next space. I think we were there for about, I want to say six months. It might have been more. But I mean, look. It, it didn't I mean, take long. That, and this is the Spice Club. Yeah, yeah. it's still the Spice Club. And so oh, then yeah. it moves look, into I mean, the main we, room. I mean, we have pictures of Sade holding up signs. Yeah. You know, puta. And, you know, like. Because it was that kind of club. It was like, it was, there was no VIP. There was no special treatment. Everyone paid their $10, and they came to hear music Everybody's going to sweat. That was right. it. There was no other frills about that. Yeah. It was about the music. It was about dancing. And it was about an underground social scene. So it was Temple at the Spice Club, right? Yeah. yeah. That, that's where it started. Where and did then, Temple move to? Oh. Uh, well, we so moved around moved for a little while. Door, and then it moved to... Well, we did the El Rey for a little the bit. The El Rey. And that well, was let's talk about El Rey. Because it's an interesting thing happened. I think, you know, the blessing and the curse of success is that once it grows, and then it kind of grows out of that core group, which it kind of like inevitably it has to, right? So people start finding out about it. Right. I think the crowd sort of started to change, and you had a lot of the kind of West Hollywood crowd. Hmm come yeah. and well it was closer to west hollywood too yeah but it's just they're finding out about it, it becomes more of this thing oh well this is cute let's go mm -hmm. uh you know let's cute latin boys there let's mm -hmm. let's go head over there and just so it started to gentrify <laughs> yeah it started to gentrify yeah it did it, <laughs> it, did. Did. it, it did. did it did it did and so i mean you as a promoter as a dj 
how do you feel about that? Look, this happens with everything in life, right? Yeah. It gets gentrified. Neighborhoods get that way. Everything is... I, I think for us, as long as we kept the integrity of what our primary purpose was, which was the music yeah. and the vibe and the, the performance element and the giving spect- spectacle, I think th- as long as we kept that, I mean, and the bottom line is you had to make money to survive. Exactly. To put on the next week exactly. or the, and the next month and the next event. So, you know... I didn't mind this as much. And also because I was in the DJ booth, I didn't see or feel what went on on the dance floor vibe. You know, my job was, because at this time I was already DJing, was to keep the vibe and the music alive. Who were the DJs that you were inspired by? Their stuff. You know, you came up with the best. I I came up with Frankie Knuckles, Little Louis Vega, um, Junior Vasquez, of course, Larry LeVan, um, Timmy Regisford, David Cole, uh, Shep Pettibone, um, even Jelly Bean. He David had his, Morales, you know, David Morales. David Morales. And don't forget um, my f- um, and, and in New, Jer- in New Jersey, David it was DePino. Tony Humphreys. And David, David DePino was just, he was just my, he was my teacher. Hmm. You know, I mean, yeah. I would spend hours in the booth with David. And just sit, just sit there and watch just him. Watch him. Yes. And watch him with his little lollipop headphone and just carry the fuck on. And I'd be like, oh, wow. Like, he would play things after other things that I would never even conceive of thinking to play together. Right. And he would make it work. And that's when I knew that, you know, you had to find your own sound. You have to find your own thing. Own and I think that's very in the Larry LeVan yes. tradition too, who would mm-hmm. play like, you know, Nasty Girl or play like a rock song and then, you know, play a yeah. classic. It wasn't Well, you know, La- well, La- Larry was more, I think, journey. Because Larry would, he, he would play a song, especially if it was one of his babies, for 45 minutes. <laughs> You will get an hour of um, get can't get enough from Liz Torres. <laughs> you would, right? And, and or or um, can't play around. Right. Can't play around. I live. <laughs> I remember hearing that for I must have been an hour and a half, from the dub to the vocal to the to the just the beats. He would like he because he he produced that. Yeah. So he had all the elements. So. He would make it a journey. Absolutely. So Pump was the next club. Was that did that go on after the Temple ended? And no, what? no, it was during Temple. Okay. But see, because Temple was a Saturday night. Yes. And Temple never had a home. Right. Temple would pop around from one place to another. We would be at one place for three months, another place for six months, another place for eight months. And look, back then there was no internet, there was no text messaging. We would have to sit in a group and put flyers and put them in envelopes with stamps and labels Wow! and put them in the mail. So, Let's, you know, our flyers were productions as well. I mean, I know people that still to today have books like, uh, like photograph books and they're all, they're our flyers. Wow. They have them saved. Wow. Because we would take time to put production into them, photo shoots with models and yeah. drag queens and I mean I mean La Selva it was about you know um, 
female impersonators waitressing at a restaurant that would turn into a Latin tribal house club. It's very cute. At <laughs> Atlas, right? At Atlas. And, you know, it was like, so we would take the queens, do photo shoots with them, maybe fishing, you know, yeah. and then cooking in the in the in the kitchen, and then Not serving, fishing. <laughs> and then yes. them on stage performing because they would do they they would have to, you know, the the servers, the waitresses were the performers, so I you know it. we got I think we got that idea from um, was it Lucky Chang's Lucky Chang's in mm-hmm. New York, yeah, but you know we took a different element because we wanted the party to continue. So after dinner, the tables would be moved. And the music would change, and we, I would start DJing, and it was, you know, Merc and uh, India and all this Latin house, tribal house that yes. was coming out at the time, and that was the vibe. Okay, hold up, Booth. So at the risk of this becoming a temple podcast, let me just recap real quick, yeah? So you have the temple, you have Pump, and you have La Selva. What happens next? The scene had moved back to West Hollywood. Okay. And West Hollywood was opening up all these little bars and these clubs. I don't know if we just lost the edge or lost the will to continue. Okay. And I think our time had just run out. How long was that run, though? Like about five years. Yeah. So I think five years is a good run. Right. You know, and I think it was just time to grow and expand. And I was ready for it. So I I, I packed up stuff. And me and uh, Tom Sierra, who was the artist that did the work, you know, he wanted to change a pace too. So we drove cross country <laughs> and left no. to Miami. So you started DJing at Pulse? So the club in, um, in Miami was called Liquid. It was supposedly their straight night. After two o'clock, it got very mixed okay. and confused. <laughs> that's, a, that's what I love about Miami. Like after 2 a.m., you don't know who's what there. <laughs> and it, it, was, it was a great vibe. They asked me to be the resident there, and I did that every Saturday night for a while. It, was, it ran for a little bit. And then what happened, it was just a turn of events because the guys that did that party for the Valentines, Carlos and Jeff, they started this new club called Pump. And they took. They said, hey, can we use your name Pump from my, from, from my I said, sure. You know, I don't have any trademark on it. So they, they took the name Pump and they started this little Friday night. And um, so I was doing Friday night, the gay night, and I was doing Saturday night, this liquid night. And liquid was owned by Ingrid and Chris. And I think Madonna had some involvement uh, financially in it. And she would show up every now and then. Um, Dennis Rodman would be there regularly. It was just, it was, it was a big um, scene kind of. You know, a lot of VIP stuff and bottle service and all that stuff, which, you know, I'm okay with because, you know, I'm, I'm here to do well, the music, what, you know, you know the, t- the tide starts turning. Well, I'm no longer kind of promoting. Right. So for me, the elements of what went on in the club, that's not my business. Right. right. And the reason why I moved to Miami was exactly for that. Yeah. I wanted to focus on the music. I didn't want to do the promotion part anymore. And then all of a sudden they wanted to take Pump from the little club and move it into um, Icon, which was Prince's Club, which was a humongous club. Held like 3,000, 4,000 people. Wow. And the opening night, we had Deborah Cox, and it was like a big thing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it was big. And I think Liquid got really jealous of that, and they let me go. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. 
and and you know, and Surprise. it was done. It was done. This is when I learned the whole shade of the industry, because there was no sitting down with me. It was some manager that I didn't even know that well come up to me and say, "Oh well, they're going to try somebody else next week," and blah blah blah. I'm like, okay, wow. Now, Pump had moved from Friday night to Saturday night. Uh oh. And we moved to a smaller space and it was after hours. Oh, this is where the after hour life came in. You know, it, it, it really switched. You know, this is when Miami started to really pop. I mean, it was incredible. And so what year are you talking about? Like the ninety I would say ninety eight. Okay. Ninety eight, yeah, ninety eight. And I ran that for five, did that for five years. Wow. Another five-year run, residency. And Pump became legendary. It was the after, it was the club. It was nothing like it. I mean, it was a small room. And by eight o'clock in the morning, the walls were wet. Everyone was dripping sweat. The screams, the hollers, the energy was just off the chain. And so what's the crowd like there in Miami? Is it... Oh, it was just... Is it mixed? Is it everything? Is it, it young? Was mixed. Is it, yeah. it was mixed. And Pump was everything because there was two after hours. It was Pump and The Mix. And The Mix was more techno rave music. Okay. And then Pump was the beats and the, and the underground and the grit of it, you know? So Pump became, I mean... And, you know, the city of Miami Beach tried to close the after hours. They tried to do away with it because they wanted to change the the energy and the atmosphere of, New, of Miami Beach, and we they had a hearing uh, because they proposed to close the after hours, and there was a hearing because these people were, there were people that were saying that it's against the law to prevent people from dancing. They right. wanted to stop people from dancing. You can't do that. <laughs> so there was a hearing in, in City Hall in Miami Beach. And I remember going and thinking, what are these people doing here? And when I got into the courtroom, well, first of all, there was like a thousand people outside looking at some, some monitor. And then there was the courtroom was full of people. And I'm hearing testimony of person after person, DJs, lawyers, um, doctors, all counting their stories of why they needed this after hours and what the music and the energy and the vibe did for them and how it was healing for them and people that had, you know, illnesses that would come there and dance. And, and I'm just sitting there and it hit me like the power of what I was doing at the time yep. because I had no clue. I was in a DJ booth playing music for people to dance. I had no clue what this was really doing in people's lives and how it was really changing people's perspectives and how it was healing people. So it was, I, I mean, I remember being just floored by that alone, you know, and, um, and that's when I was like, okay, I know I'm doing the right thing, you know? And, um, and it was really weird because I had, doubted myself as a DJ for so long and so many years, even into doing this, that, you know, it, w it was really, it, I guess it's a, it's a self, um, um, uh, one of my character defects, I would say, 
So you doubting know, yourself in terms of what? Your ability, like your actual ability, or just doubting that you're, that you're going to make it as a DJ? Or well, you know, I guess when you're, when, you're, when you're doing this or you're doing any creative job or, or talent, you know, expressing yourself creatively, there's always that self-doubt. But when you don't have, because I never look for it, recognition, you know, and people yesing me, there's always that sense of doubt, you know. And because you're up against all these other DJs that are up and coming, you know, and being compared to people like Victor Calderon and Abel and all these people, it was like, it puts more pressure. Right. And it did something to me where I kind of self-sabotage myself because a lot of times I undersold myself. Hmm. I underbid it myself right. for gigs. And I, you know, it became to a point where I felt like I was selling myself short. And because of it, it created kind of like a negative ion in my in my my life. And and it 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 hurt to see people to see DJs of my caliber making 10 times more money than me, you know, because I never thought of having a manager or having somebody um, rule the business side of my life. Right. Just that whole marketing aspect. Yeah. So and represents you. Yeah. 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 yeah because, because, you know, it's also a lot of DJs who aren't of your caliber, who well, aren't that. Great, who are making you know, yeah, fifty you know, grand in and Vegas. I think that underselling myself really started a downward spiral for me okay. with 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 um with DJing as a whole. Right. And um and so so it, it lasted the time it lasted and then I found myself, you know, getting more into the production side of music because I found somebody to co produce with and we started to do these little remixes on the side. And I started to ask people on the labels because I was a billboard reporter. I think I was a billboard, probably at that time I was a reporter for already like 15 years. And I started to ask um, people in the industry for acapellas so I could start doing my own mixes. And a few of my mixes really launched me. And I did a mix for Gwen Stefani. And I did a mix for... Well, you did a bunch of remixes you did cindy lopper yeah yeah but the, the gwen stefani and the cindy lopper i think were the first two to really take me into the realm where record labels were looking at me and saying oh yeah right this one's got a good sound that we could you know that we because at that moment it was just all junior victor hex hector um uh guido uh razor and guido it was just a lot of this. It was the same people doing right. all the vocal remixes. Johnny Vicious. Um, there was a, so it was my it was my turn to kind of step up into that realm, and oh my God, did we? It just it got its own life. It really did. And how was that creatively? Like, how did that differ for you in terms of DJ? Because you well, know, you're DJing, you got the feedback from the crowd. People are dancing. You're remixing, you're just, it's just you really and the track. Right. Well, the good thing about it is that I had a club. I still had the club platform to test it out in. Right. And when I would, you know, do a mix for Madonna or for 
and I would just play it at the club just to see how it went over and I would get this like really amazing response I, I, I was like okay this is done yes. and some of them were not so that way and then you know like uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom by Melanie that this song that was just it was everything but it took us it took me a good six tries to really get it to the point where I mean I never I forget I never forget coming to LA to play for a one of these big weekends at Avalon with uh, with Peter Rohoffer at the time. And um, and we had, I had um, uh, um, Flava perform Meet Me in the Bathroom. And when that, when she got on stage and that song dropped, that place would never be the same. I remember Peter looking at me like, what the fuck is this? I was like... <laughs> She's got it. Like it's it, it. You know, you know, and you know there were magical moments like this that constantly happened. Like I remember one time it was music conference. It was at Crowbar. It was on Sunday night, and Victor Calderon was playing. And I had seen Victor Calderon two days before, and I gave him two CDs, one of of a mix that a song that had came out called Tomba Vera, Drums Come Alive, and another one that was unreleased. That I never released, and the only person I gave it to was him. And I remember walking into the club, and the first thing he dropped, so as soon as I walk in, was that Tumba Vera mix. And it has a big buildup in the middle, but when it explodes, it explodes, it rocks the house. And I remember just getting around to the DJ booth just in time for the explosion, and everyone was there. It was music conference week. Right. So all the industry, all the DJs, everyone was around Victor. This was Victor's night. And he backs that track up with the second track I gave him, which which was this thing called um, The Way. That's all I called it. The Way. The Way That. The Way That. Because that's all it says. It's a, it only took a little bit of the vocal from this girl. And... Let me tell you, this track, and when I walked into the DJ booth, Victor gets on his knees and bows down to me. And I'm looking at around at all these people from the industry, and they're all looking at me like, is this your track? I said, oh, yeah. yeah. Get ready. And that track had a little moment of silence where the girl does this whisper, and I let the whisper linger for a while. And all of a sudden, when the beat kicks in, that place lit on fire i mean you could see people from all levels of that club just jumping up and down screaming and i was just like and i'm just looking around and everyone is looking at me like you motherfucker when do i get this track? like everyone wanted it and that whole weekend was about you know danny rampling danny teneglia timo moss uh carl cox they all played that track wow like that track was played in every club for me, it was like that moment of arrival in yeah. the music industry, in the business. You know how everything has its peak? And I think that was my peak, you know? And, and, and as weird as it sounds, like, you know, I kept doing it. And then I moved to L.A. and I did a recording studio. We did mixes. I mean, I did, my God, from Barry Manilow to... I had Donna Summers come into my recording studio and record with us. Um, oh, my God. 
You did Anastasia too. Anastasia. Nikki Harris. Nikki Harris. <laughs> Ricky Martin. Shakira. Bette Midler. Wow. Barbara Streisand. I spoke to Barbara Streisand on the phone. She had never been remixed before, ever. And they picked me and Junior Vasquez to remix. That's amazing. Yeah. That is amazing, yeah. right? You talk about the pinnacles on pinnacles. I know. Oh and, I'm talk- and I'm talking with Barbara Streisand on the phone because he, the manager was there with us. He said, oh, you know, Barbara has some notes on, 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 on levels. Do you mind if I? I'm like, of course not. <laughs> so we put her. Uh, she we puts her on speakerphone. She's talking to us. She's talking to us, and she's telling us where exactly in each note this. No, this needs to be up to the beats. This needs wow. to be. And she and I said, I said, well, we could strip out the 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 synths here and the. She says, why? She says, that's what I love the most about this track. She says, what do you think? I don't know about dance music. Oh, Uh-oh. And she starts, no, naming she, off all, she starts naming off all Paul Van Dyke and all these people that she I'm oh like, oh, like, Watch you know, here I am thinking she doesn't know about me. You know, I was like. Well, she does have a gay son. And let me tell you, the, after we finished all the let's changes. Just, let's just put that on the table. <laughs> we'll leave you with this little bit right here. Y'all enjoy she knows that. What's up. Yeah. Back to Eddie. She, okay. <laughs> and let me tell you, playing back the track afterwards, it sounded like a whole different track. Like, yeah, she, she knew with somebody exactly who really knows what it needed. Her yeah. shit. And, yeah. And, and, um, and it got released. It did reach number one on the Billboard um, mixes. Ew. My mix was better than Junior's, sorry <laughs> to say. Well, I gave it a disco element, yeah, you yeah. know, because it, it was with the beat, it was with Barry Gibb, it was called Night of My Life, and it had that disco element, so I'm saying, let's just take it retro. Wow. Right. So we took it retro with a little tribal chug behind it, and it, it just worked. It worked as a mix. And I was surprised because then I would, everywhere I would travel to DJ, people would ask me to play the mix. So Barry Gibb and Barbara Streisand, yeah, this they, is their they, second. They did their second. Right, re- because they had yes. Guilty back in the guilty, 70s. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It was called yeah. Guilty Pleasures, I think the second one. Okay, I love it. And the song was called Night of My Life. And yeah, so, so you know, we had, we had, it in the, we were in the good graces of all the record labels. Yeah. I mean, we were working with Interscope. We were working with Capital. We were working with Warner Brothers. I mean, and this was, is you and Luigi, right? Lu, me and Luigi Gonzalez, yeah. Well, I mean, they would the way they would send us the Madonna vocals. Oh my God, it was like this big underground secret coding. Yeah, <laughs> wrapped in brown paper. Like we're paint, used to just downloading the vocals. No, not with her. It was wow. just a whole big production. Yeah. But we we remixed actually. Um, what was that song that she did with the Abba Loop? Um, well, Don? we had done. We had. I had done a few remixes for her, but they were more bootleg. And this is the first official mix that I got to do with her. It was hung up. Yeah, hung up. It was hung up. And not only did we do a club mix for it, but we did a reggaeton mix for it as well, which never got released. Wow. And it's super badass. And we took it reggaeton. I'm sure she'll release it now. Like, if now it's it's exactly what she would, yeah, it definitely would mm-hmm. fit in for her now. Everything has its time. Yeah. Because it got to a point where every DJ and their mother was downloading software and doing remixes at their house. Right. So the labels no longer needed to pay, you know, ten, twelve thousand dollars for remixes because they would get them for free. Oh yeah. So yes. they started leaking out all the vocals, you know, to DJs. And next thing you know, they they had for free 
10 different mixes of their songs. So there was no real need for it. Right. Like, like, because basically what they used it as, the labels would use it as a promotional tool. So it wasn't like they were releasing, you know, it was really strange because even, be, um, sorry, Barbara Streisand's manager said to us, says, if we would have had this mix a month ago, we would have put it on the album. Wow. And see, for us, as as producers, that would have been a big deal. Yeah. Because to have our mix produced on a Barbra Streisand album, first of all, a lot of coins, <laughs> you know, would have made us, would have put us in a different level of production. But because, we, we, you know, they and they still used it, but they used it more as a promotional tool, which is what they did with all remixes. But, you know, it got to that time where, Everyone was doing remixes. We weren't getting the jobs in the house like we needed to. So we started to produce our own artists. Yeah. Right. And we, we, we tried to produce a boy, a boy band, like, a, like a, uh, it was four guys. We flew them in from different places. And we, did, we got uh, Dean Pitchard wrote a song uh, for us who wrote um, All the Man I Need for Whitney Houston. He worked with us and wrote a song for the, for the, for the guys. We produced the music. Like... It was coming up, and again, something happened where it just, you know, some things hit and some things don't. Right. Yeah. You know, right. and um, you know, and and it was, you know, and it was time, and we were just the 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 recording production remix business was just done for us. That's the thing with a lot of this digital, you know, this this it's great in one way because it's made it so democratic like anybody can make anything but even with DJing now everybody's a DJ every model yeah. slash D, you know everybody's got a laptop yeah but in a way to be fair Eddie you were an influencer of your time I mean you really again I'll say it again changed the landscape of club and culture mm. in Los Angeles and then you went ahead and did that in Miami, so you know we would call you an influencer. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, but just in terms of like sustaining, no, no, of, co of course, a career course. now with that, you know, you're competing with people who are just personalities. Yeah, yeah. of course. You know, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why I believe in the evolution of it. It's yeah. like you know, I, 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 at this point, don't see myself at the age I am, going from city to city, from club to club. You know. I just don't feel it for me. Yeah, it's a so lot. I, I'm not going to pretend to do it and do it because it's making me good money. I have to own the fact that, you know, it's time to, you know, pass the torch on to someone else. Hang up the headphones. You know, and or pass them on. <laughs> right. 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 And, right, and you right. know, and I've known so many DJs now that are really grateful for that. Yeah. And yeah. they send me messages thanking me. says, you know, Eddie, you're a legend. And, you know... <laughs> we're inspired by you but thank you for giving us the opportunity to take these this you know and it, and i just feel like it's a natural progression right you know because i want to do other things right you know and that leads me to you backing off from all that production mm -hmm. work and the remixes and the djing even though i went to a party just the other day where he was uh DJing and I was, you know, it was like I was back at Temple all over again. Oh, well, so he's always fun. gonna light it up. Oh, it was so great. You know. But what is that for you now? Like, how do you feel? Fun. 
Oh, really? Yeah. You, I you love can it. just go and have you fun. Know, now I yeah. get to go have fun. Yeah. I get to play whatever the hell I want, and I get to enjoy it. There's no pressure. I don't need no contract. I don't need no big payment. I'm doing this for fun because it, 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 I still have that itch inside me that wants to, you know, still do it. But other than that, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it actually feels good now. Because for a time it was rocky because I felt like I was doing it because I had bills to pay. Well, that's always the struggle, right? The and art versus the commerce. Yeah. You know, when you're an artist. Backing off from that and just getting a, a job to take care of my finances and my bills. And it's a nine to five and it, and it you know, it takes, and it's back actually in the industry that I first um, studied when I graduated high school, which is travel. So I've been doing that now for 10 years. Full circle. And it's like a full circle. Yeah. And then I started replaying in my head the things that I started in life but I never completed. You know how we reflect on our lives? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, started, I was ref- doing all this reflection and I get this, uh, I make this phone call to this, to this friend and he says to me, you know, he says, I don't know what you're doing right now but I'm interested in in I, I i need your type he says i've been looking at your pictures and um i'm working with this big talent agency now and i'm looking for your type he says i, I need mature men that look kind of worldly so you could look you know that you're latin but you could look you know kind of global right and when I went to see this agent, I thought it was like some small agency. And I walk into what looks like Vanity Fair. We had a chat and he, he suggested to me that I start to take some acting class. And just so be it that every day I would walk to the gym from my house and I pass by this little place on El Centro in Santa Monica Boulevard. And I look up and it's William Alderson acting. And I've been passing by looking at this sign every day like it's a sign. Right. But I didn't see it until I drove back from this guy's agency. So I signed up. Wow. And I've been doing that ever since. And literally you could walk from your... Uh, yeah, yeah, right. Like you can it's, walk. Yeah, so two days a week. And for four hours, I go and get my creative juice alive again. I love and it. It's challenging as fuck. Because you know it's actually an actual acting technique. It's I didn't know that acting had a technique. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I did from yeah. when I was younger. But this is this it's intense. Yeah, and it's really precise. And I'm learning so much. And I'm taking class with kids that are like born past 1980, maybe in the <laughs> 90s. But it's so inspiring. Yeah, and it's really like allowing me to take risks again yes and to bring in all this experience and all these creative endeavors that you've done in the past like you bring all of that into your all Mm -hmm. these experiences the traveling the you can all you can bring that all into your acting now and that it's so weird you say that because that's exactly the words that rick used when he when i sat with him in his agency he says eddie you've lived yeah absolutely and and that's what's well, that's what you have to bring to the table that's now right. is that you have life experience and he says you're going to be an asset not only to that class but to the industry because you have something you have something to say you better be on csi puerto rico i'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well thank you so much eddie this was a 
an incredible conversation, <laughs> an incredible interview. Uh, thank you, guys. And not <laughs> only are you a really good friend of both me and Kim's, but you are such a talent and such a beautiful, beautiful person mm-hmm. inside and out that it's really a gift that we know you and and we're honored to be your friend. Mm-hmm. Yes, always a little ray of sunshine. We really thank you for being with us today. You guys, that was DJ Eddie Give it up for DJ Eddie X. (laughs) All right, really quickly before we leave, we have our work of the week. So the work of the week for us is just something that we like like to shout out. This week, my work of the week actually is inspired by you. It's my work of the week is David DePino, who was, you know, your teacher, your mentor, definitely one of my mentors in regards to clubs and you know djs at clubs so shout out to david DePino. i love you so much thank you icon icon legend um my work of the week is actually a mommy moment i had with my daughter oh. my daughter's eight she's almost nine and we were uh looking for a movie on hulu so we're like scan you know scrolling and the documentary for um check it came on and it's like the picture with the brass knuckles with the nail so she's like what's that i said oh it's a documentary about these gay and transgender folks in dc that have to start this gang to protect themselves and she's like why and i'm like well because people harass them people you know transgender people get murdered and she's like why she's like it's just people that just feel comfortable like they feel more comfortable like in a different body she was just seriously like did not I can't with her I live it. I live for this little girl I was like work work <laughs> go Mia yes alright Eddie Ooh. your work of the week this comes from my heart my work of the week is a shout out to my partner Dominic and his family cause last week we went to his grandma's 80th birthday and you know me living here in Los Angeles and not having my immediate family here um I feel like I've been adopted by a beautiful family that like when they see me and when I see them, it's just nothing but love. And I feel that energy of love from his brothers, from his sisters, from his mom to his dad to his grandmas. And it's just, it's a family of love. And they're all born and raised and live here. And, you know, they ha- the family has family, has family, has kids. And it's just a big um, ensemble of just love, you know. And every time I'm around them, they just fill me with so much, like, just comfort, comfort and love. Yeah, you know, no, so his family is goals. That's my I'm work sure. of the week. All right, well, there you have it. There's the work of the weeks. Thank you for joining us folks for another episode of work Work, the podcast don't forget to subscribe and you can follow us on instagram at work podcast that's w-e-r-q-u-e-p-o-d-c-a-s-t you can also follow me at workdanceclass.com so this is lewis extravaganza and kim blackwell and this was Work work the podcast Bye. We'll see you later, guys. Thank you.